Welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory Garay, TJ Beater, and Kathy Garay. Each week, we talk about the connections between owners and their pets with an emphasis on topics that apply to greyhounds. If you want to hear more about your best friend, stay tuned. Now, here are your hosts. Happy first Friday of the new decade to all of our listeners across the globe. Today on GMGP, we will be joined by John Deanna, reporter for the Arizona Republic, and have a discussion on how racing has changed over the years in the media, in popularity, and public perception. And we will also reflect on the work and murder of Don Bowles and how it impacted perspective. Now, John Deanna's recent article, and it was a fabulous article, I must say, entitled, After Don Bowles, The Evolution of Racetracks, Mob Influence, and Kemper Marley, can currently be found on azcentral.com. But first, get ready, get set, because the Solvang Gathering is less than a week away. On January 9th through 12th in Solvang, California, you will see a sea of hounds and humans, and they will be enjoying speaker presentations, a blessing of the hounds, memorial bell ceremony, the Solvang Streak, a paper mache greyhound making class, senior houndy recognition, and exceptional shopping with top-notch vendors and adoption groups. New to the event in 2020 will be the Artist Showcase, featuring six fabulous artists from across the United States. It's going to be a delightful weekend, and you've got to be there. Do I need to tell you there'll be pastries? Okay, there will be pastries. Visit the Solvang Gatherings Facebook page for everything you need to know, but you better hurry. Sandy Paws, Great Fun in the Sun, is March 12th through 15th, 2020, at Villas by the Sea Conference Center on Jekyll Island in Georgia. This tiny but mighty gathering is filled with old and new friends and oodles of beautiful greyhounds. Paws down, Jekyll Island is one of the most gorgeous and relaxing places for your greycation. Info, updates, and registration can be found at their website, www.sandypaws.org. Start 2020 off right by making a generous donation to your Greyhound Adoption Group. Remember, it's the least you can do for the people who have provided you with the coolest pet ever. And, don't need to remind you, but I will, your plucky Greyhounds Make Great Pet hosts always are on the lookout for interesting guests and topics. So if you have a suggestion, Email us the full 411 at gmgp3 at yahoo.com. And don't forget, Greyhounds Make Great Pets, and that's spelled G-R-E-A-T, is on Facebook, and it would mean a lot to us if you could give our page a like. Just look for GMGP Scooter, and you will know this is the way. Now, before we bring on today's guest, John Deanna, Rory. Would you like to share a quick recap of what we did last Saturday? Well, or was it Sunday? Well, it was. It was, yeah. it was a big day. It was a big day. It was actually Sunday. Um, Delaware North allowed me and Kathy joined me uh, to go into the Phoenix Greyhound Park over here on Washington in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and so we were able to walk through the whole facility. And the purpose of my visit was I was looking for memorabilia that I could pick up to auction off for Greyhound adoption. I wasn't sure what I was going to find, but we did find several items uh, there. 
actually a few times we had to dig through trash um, to find them. But we did find some great items for auction off. And then actually I've got here in the studio with me a picture we found of the old Phoenix uh, Greenhound Park, which John and I will be talking about here in a little bit. But it was a, a great uh, find, several finds that I know are going to help out the Greyhound adoption. Um, but before that, the last couple of weeks I've been re reflecting on times past, the days when I was a paper boy for the Imperial Valley Press in El Centro, California. I remember I couldn't wait to finish my route and get home and read the paper. I remember later on in life, the high school years, getting up at 2 a.m. to drive up the hill to go get a truckload of San Diego Union papers to bring back down to El Centro and distribute to the paper boys and then fill up the paper machines. And even though I should have probably taken a, that time to go to bed and get a couple of hours sleep before going to school, I'd stay up and read my paper. And, yeah, I blame that on my grades. I, yeah, that's it. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> reading the paper was part of the day. You know, reading the paper, it was part of growing up, learning, and most importantly, it was part of the daily educational experience. I was recently watching a podcast from EJ, is it Montini? Yes. Yeah. Um, it was about on looking back. And over the years, EJ has written many articles that some I did personally I didn't agree with, but every one of those articles made me think, and that is the talent of a journalist. They know not all will agree, but they want to engage you into thinking. And this one really hit me, looking back. What, what can we learn from the past? A lot has changed since that summer day when Don Bowles and his car were blown up. The town has grown. But at times I wonder, while Don did a remarkable job to rid our state, the state of Arizona, of corruption, has our inability to learn from our past become our future? We no longer support the media, the journalists, the ones who love doing what they do and do it with the utmost of integrity. They just want us to be held accountable. They want to bring us a story. Learning about all the corruption that Don was able to rid our state of had me even thinking of if we were treating the media today the same way back then, would we have even learned about Watergate? So today we're going to discuss the changes in time and how they've impacted horse greyhound racing and, and our life in general. Because uh, for me, I do believe the media is the big one aspect that keeps us grounded and keeps us accountable. And with that, John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rory, and, and thank you so much for those those kind words. Um, the assassination of Don Bowles is one of the reasons I got into journalism. There were a couple of others, but uh, you know that that's sort of what led me down this path. And I can remember as a uh, a teenager living in Tucson, Arizona, uh, that summer of 1976, and reading the Tucson Citizen every day as they um, you know doctors amputated limb after limb trying to keep Don Bowles alive. And I just remember thinking that, you know, for somebody to want to do something that terrible to another human being, that, that human being must have been doing some really important work. And I really believe um, that Don Bowles was doing uh, incredibly important work for the state. And I'm really proud to have been able to have uh, participated in this project. It, uh, the story I wrote was in support of a six-part podcast that we did, and uh, uh, we 
in an old warehouse discovered some um, old tapes, cassette tapes that were in a filing cabinet. And as it turned out, those were tapes that Don Bowles himself had recorded of interviews with his sources. And so it was it was pretty uh, pretty enlightening and pretty, um, you know, his, his picture hangs in our newsroom and I see it every day. But to actually hear his voice was just sent you know, chills down my spine. And so it was a real honor to be able to work on the project. You know, for me, I, I listened to all those podcasts. And yeah, it was listening, hearing Don in his own voice. It, it was just, yeah, chills. And then the, I can't remember if it was the second to last podcast where there was a, a lawyer had had their tape going and you heard the explosion. Yeah. That that just really hit me. Exactly. And I I, I posted on Facebook and on Twitter that day that I uh, heard the the next to the last episode. And uh, when I heard that explosion, it just it shook me to my core. And, you know, I, I, first I got to say thank you to all the staff down there at Arizona Republic for, I, I think it was really important to revisit this and also go back to the stories that Don had worked on. I It didn't even dawn on me that the, what is now the uh, Arrowhead Ranch area, I didn't realize that that was a corrupt land deal years ago. Um, but it was just, Don did a lot for our state. Yeah, and I, and I think that's why, one of the reasons why I think it's important that we remember his work because the, the fact is that so many people who live in Arizona now are, are transplants and, and recent transplants. And so they don't know the history. They don't know how um, uh, how much the mob had infiltrated Arizona and how much control they had over Arizona at, at the time. And, you know, they're, they're, they're still organized crime in Arizona. And it's, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, there aren't enough reporters left to uncover everything the way Don Bowles did. But um, it's it's kind of a sad statement on the state of the media these days. <laughs> um, but, you know, those of us who are left, uh, we're doing our, our, our level best to, to keep at it. Well, I was the first one to get – oh, go, well, I was thinking of first going into this picture here to talk about that, but you just brought up a subject there. And I, I remember, too, when we had Richard in here, we were talking, and he was, he was telling me how at one point in time we had enough journalists here in Arizona that could cover every hearing. Um, you know, I've been a racing commissioner now for um, eight, nine years, and I think um, I could probably count on my two hands the number of times I've seen a reporter in there. And that to me is a sad thing because something I think about that has changed since then. Like you know, we used to have these reporters that could try keep us accountable, and I believe there's three keys to accountability. One is you're accountable to yourself. Two, you're accountable to the people you represent, and I'm I'm kind of talking about as somebody who's appointed or elected in this. The third one is the media holding you accountable. I know if I see media in there, they're listening and they're going to hold me accountable to what I say. I think back uh, back to Don Bowles' days, we had a little of maybe one and two, but we had a lot of number three. Don was holding these people accountable. And n now what really scares me going forward is we're going to be lacking number three, the media holding our politicians, our appointed officials accountable. And that is what is so sad. 
Well, there, there, there's two things I would say to that. The first is, yes, um, you know, the, the, the media has uh, uh, declined a lot. The numbers of the media have declined a lot. Uh, when I started at the Arizona Republic 26 years ago, uh, one of my new colleagues said, uh, you know, welcome, you're number 545 on the seniority list. And so we had 545 journalists at the Arizona Republic. Now we have about a fourth of that. Um, that's part of media consolidation, um, but it, the, the impact on our communities is very real because we used to have reporters covering pretty much every city council meeting all the time, and you know today we just don't have it. The good part, uh, or the part that, that makes me not lose hope, is that um, we have a lot of people out there who are our eyes and ears, and there are citizens, there are uh, you know honest officials who are willing to uh, say things to reporters and alert us and let us know. And we depend on that more than ever. Uh, a couple recent examples, uh, there were some shenanigans up on uh, the Scottsdale School Board that uh, parent activists uncovered and brought our reporters into. A lot of the work um, my colleague Craig Harris has done on the uh, state retirement system uh, has been because people have said this is not right and they've contacted a reporter. So I think there's still, uh, you know, a, a vehicle there. It's just we, we can't be everywhere. And so we really depend more and more on the eyes and ears of, uh, of the people who are actually there letting us know what's going on. Well, I mean, that is good that there's still some honest people out there willing to help out. And that, that is appreciative because, you know, I know even last year there was a bill. Somebody was asking me for information to look up to what was going on. And just myself, I knew where to go, what to do. It still took me a while to try to figure out so I could get back to this person with some information. And I, I, it just scares me that there may come a day where our media is going to be not there to hold people accountable anymore. Yeah. Well, it, you know, another thing, too, is that um, – there's going to be media. It may, just may take a different form. Um, we're, we're, we're always experimenting with new platforms, uh, ways to reach people like podcasting. You know, if you would have told me that uh, my paper would have been hosting a podcast project three or four years ago, I'd have said you're nuts. But um, uh, we, 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 we do it. And we've got, you know, Valley 101. We've got the Don Bowles podcast. And we're, we're constantly um, doing that. But if you just look over at uh, – um, the Cronkite School at ASU and at uh, down at the University of Arizona, um, the journalism school there, there are a lot of young people going into journalism these days. And the reason why is because they want to learn critical thinking and they want to be watchdogs on their government. They want to um, uh, do things. But they're, 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 they're doing it with vehicles like drone journalism, uh, something I never could have imagined. My, my, my father worked on the early drone prototypes in the 1960s that were so huge that they were carried <laughs> on the wing of a C, uh, of a C130 and and now we've got journalists who are flying them and you know it's uh, a whole separate program so uh, it's the, the the journalism is expanding into areas that we never could have envisioned and that gives me a lot of hope for the future well for me like an old fart that makes me happy to know that that'll be changing Um it's, you know, 
You, you just hit on something, and I had I had mentioned earlier, you know, like EJ, he, some of his stories, I didn't always agree with them, but they made me think. It gave me that critical thinking. And what, what I find frustrating today is I see stories. Um, we know politics is a it's, – it's dividing us. And immediately there's always – people want to c- shoot back at, ah, fake news, or they call names and all that. And I find that to be the most frustrating thing um, going on. Yeah, it's, it, it is frustrating, and I, and I share that frustration as well. Um, you know, the Arizona Republic had never endorsed a Democrat for president until 2016, and we endorsed Hillary Clinton. Um, and regardless of what you think of that, uh, we had uh, just tons of threats, um, death threats. Uh, it, was, it was horrific what the backlash of that was. We lost uh, advertisers. It was, um, you know, and that that just really cemented for me how, um, you know, not just how polarized we are, but just how vitriolic everything has gotten. And, uh, you know, most journalists I know, honest-to-goodness journalists, as opposed to, you know, the, the commentators on cable television news um, and and you know they're they're more commentators than than journalists they're not out doing original research they're not out uh, you know looking under rocks and <laughs> trying to you know figure out how things work um, you know but the any journalist who works at the Arizona Republic if they made something up if they intentionally uh, invented something or fabricated it they'd be fired on the spot uh, the the Society of Professional Journalists has a code of ethics and so does uh, Gannett the company that owns the Arizona Republic that where I work um, we have codes of ethics and uh, the journalists I know and work with my colleagues um, they all adhere to to that uh, because it's too important not to. Well, you, you just brought up something, ethics. And when I was listening to the podcast that Richard had done, I there was one thing they were sharing some of the um, tape of and talking about some of the things. And they said that they were able to share that because of a court case that said this, this information was allowed to be used or had been used in court. But otherwise, even though one of your own had been killed, you still would have protected the sources. And I found that to be the m- remarkable that still today. Yeah, there's actually, um, you know, I, I was involved in a press freedom case here al- along similar lines where I had uh, promised to keep something confidential. I had written it down in my notes and a defense attorney subpoenaed my notes. And so we fought that. And I was very proud that the company supported me all the way. And we, we eventually uh, won. So uh, I didn't have to honor that subpoena. But when you make a promise to somebody as a reporter that you're going to keep their identity confidential, um, you know, that that promise is, is, is solemn. And the the courts have even ruled that if you break that promise, you can be um, uh, guilty of a breach of, con- of, of contract. So um, we take it very seriously. And a lot of people get um, upset when we allow people to go off the record because they think that um, we're just allowing people to settle scores or, um, you know, to promote their own agenda without being, as you, as you mentioned earlier, without being accountable. Uh, but before we allow anyone to go off the record, we have to be convinced that there is a 
very good reason for it, that they'll suffer personal harm, that they'll lose their job, that their children will be harassed. Um, you know, there has to be a very good reason for it. And as reporters, we have to have those agreements approved by our editors. So um, there, there is a vetting process on that. So it's just not, uh, you know, oh, uh, public official A wants to spout off on public official B, <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll let him go off the record. So no, we don't, we don't really do that. And, you know, that's another nice thing. I know from Dennis Wagner um, and Richard and yourself, if I were to tell you, we'll just use the guy next door here, Aaron, that Aaron hates baby Yoda, you're not just going to go write that story. You're going to go then talk to Aaron to find out, do you really hate baby Yoda? And he's going to tell you, no, I love baby Yoda because Rory's lying. And and I, I found that to be just really remarkable that I, I can't just tell you something. You're going to do the research. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, we um, – that, that's, again, part of our obligation is we have to check out not, not just both sides but all sides. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, – something we used to say, I, I was an editor for a long time, and I would tell people when I would get a what's called a single source story, and I'd say, well, if you just got one story, how can you have both sides? So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really important to, you know, get as much information as you can about uh, what you're writing about. Now, at some point in time, I do... John, oh, oh. Go ahead, Kathy. I'll shut oh, okay. up. Okay, John, do you find... Oh. <laughs> No, you got, you've been fine. Um, John, do you find that um, the inclusion of social media such as, you know, Facebook commentary, Twitter posts, um, don't help when, when you say you, you look for a story and you, you get validation and you try to get all sides? Sometimes, you know, things just spread like wildfire on social media and you really can disseminate truth from just, you know, hearsay or, you know, it's a telephone game. Everybody, every time they post, they just add a little more, add a little more. Um, is this harming um, journalism in, in the long run? Or are you guys still able to filter through all that and get your point across and get the facts out? Yeah, it's it's really a double-edged sword. Um, I use social media a lot to promote my stories to people who may not have the opportunity to see the Arizona Republic because they don't live in Phoenix or wherever. Um, I use both Twitter and Facebook. I'm not not so good on Instagram. I'm not not that photogenic. So uh, um, I've, I've got a, I've got a face made for radio. But um, the, <laughs> yeah, we I do too. So uh, yeah, I, I get that. I don't believe that for a second. But uh, you know and. And so I, I use it to promote my work, but yeah, you're right. There there are times when uh, people just attack for the sake of attacking, and uh, I actually got uh, okay boomered not too long ago after a, a story I wrote <laughs> after a story I wrote on water conservation, and uh, uh, a young person uh, vehemently disagreed with me, and so she she wrote okay boomer on Twitter, uh, which I kind of regarded as a badge of honor. But um, <laughs> you know, my colleagues and I have all had much more horrible things written about us uh, on social media. So um, they, it, it is kind of a, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, it's a giant cesspool. And if <laughs> I weren't using, you know, Facebook and Twitter to promote my work, I, I don't think I would be spending much time on them. Well, you, you bring up a point right. there for our for the racing community. I've seen some stories that have come out about greyhound racing or even horse racing, and immediately there'll be somebody jumping in, calling the reporter names. Um, 
saying they don't know what they're talking about, just um, even using vulgar language. And I keep talking about public perception, and a lot of people do read the article and will read the first several um, comments. And to me, that does not help. If if I don't agree with you on a story, what is the best way? How should I engage you? Uh, the best way is call me up and uh, or shoot me an email. And the, and the first thing I'm going to ask you is if I got something wrong. And, you know, reporters are human beings. We get things wrong. We make mistakes. And um, for us, it's, um, it's important to our credibility that we correct them as, as quickly as possible. Um, and sometimes we just don't have enough information. Um, that happens, and we'll do a follow-up story. So, you know, the first thing is, 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 is just, uh, you know, get in touch with me. And you know, let me know if I made a mistake. And if, if, if I did, I'm going to correct it. And then I'll, I'll listen to your side. Um, you mentioned uh, my, 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 my colleague, Dennis Wagner, who's now at USA Today. Um, he's written some incredibly hard-hitting investigative stories. And one thing he always does after everyone runs, and I mean, some of these stories have ruined people's careers. Um, uh, well, actually, they ruined their careers, and he just wrote about them, but <laughs> exactly. uh, is the way I look at it. But uh, he, he picks up the phone and calls him and says, did you see the story? Do you have any issues with it? And uh, and talks it through with them. And uh, it's, you know, I, I don't do that with every story. Uh, my, I find I'm not well organized and don't have the, that, that much time. But, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing. And we want to hear the feedback. And, and, and again, we want to get it right. And if we make a mistake, we're going to correct it. Is it Beneficial, or do the people just really look stupid and it doesn't help their cause if they jump in and start commenting on an article and calling you names and all that? You know, the, uh, the name calling never helps, but sometimes, um, you know, you have to have a little bit of a thick skin as a journalist and you have to be able to. Uh, uh, you know, I, I once had an editor who. Um, uh, after I edited a story, he came over and said, well, you must have had your head up your you-know-what when you <laughs> edited that story. And I went, oh, my gosh, you know. And, and I had to take a deep breath, and I had to say, uh, okay, what does he mean by that? Is there a problem with what I did? And so I, you know, kind of steeled myself, and then he explained what, you know, what was wrong, and I went back and fixed it. So if, if you can develop a thick skin and look past, you know, the name-calling and things and say, okay, do they have a point? And sometimes they do. Yeah. Uh, for me, as a racing commissioner, I can remember I was in a, in a meeting and they have call to the public. And I love call to the public because you get to hear from the people. And somebody got up and he started speaking and he said, said what a jerk I was for a, a way I had voted. And I didn't take offense to it. I started thinking, this guy has something to say. I maybe should go out and visit uh, the people on the backside and start hearing what they have to say. And I did. And it, it, it helped me a lot with my uh, racing commission career. And with that, I think we're going to take a break because I see the pups need to get out and relieve themselves. So we'll be right back after these messages. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Very sure has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. GPA, that's Greyhound Pets of America. If you would like information on how you can adopt an ex-racing Greyhound, call 800-366-1472. These dogs are fit, healthy, happy, playful pets, good with children, and oh, do they love lots of hugs. Adopt a cool Greyhound today. Call 800-366-1472. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to greyhounds make great pets with rory tj and kathy to find out more about the show and what we do please send an email to gmgp3 at yahoo.com that's gmgp3 at yahoo.com now back to greyhounds make great pets Yes, I'd like to welcome all our listeners back to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. We are here today with John Deanna, reporter for the Arizona Republic, and we are discussing the changes in Arizona since racing's heyday, and that would be both horse and greyhound, and some incidents and situations that helped form um, or you know, good, for better or worse, uh, the way Arizona shapes up today. So, Rory, I'm going to hand it back over to you. Oh, thank you, Kathy. Yeah, I was kind of thinking uh, about the band Kicks, and they're the ones who uh, did the song uh, Can't Stop the Show for opening our show. And they kind of got into their music um, right at the end of the hair, hair band era. And then all of a sudden things changed and people started getting into grunge. It doesn't mean music went away. It's just people's attitude or people's likes changed at that time. And I brought in today a photograph from the old Phoenix Greyhound Park. And in this photo, you can see the grandstand is just full of people. And then actually, I think we may have had a photo bomber in the 1970s there. I was going to ask Karen Young if her husband was in uh, Phoenix in the 1970s. But there's a crowd of people there. I see even a mother with her ch- child in, in there, and then there's uh, some children. And I, I look at it, and I see everyone is intent looking at their card. I see what I'm seeing is these people were gambling. But be, when this photo was taken, John, Arizona really didn't have the, um, the lotto, the racinos, or the casinos. Um, Phoenix Suns had just, I think, come along. Yeah, um you know, uh, when I was researching the uh, Don Bowles article, I found, I ran across an, a 1965 Sports Illustrated article where uh, a, a Sports Illustrated reporter came to Phoenix and to participate in horse racing and dog racing and, and all the activities. The, the, the title of the article was Racing Beneath the Peaks. And uh, uh, he was, the, our author was very much enamored of our mountains and everything. But, but you're right. In, in those days, the entertainment options in Phoenix were much more narrow. Um, we didn't have a professional basketball team until 1968, and that was our only professional sports team for almost, uh, well, major league sports team because we had uh, minor league baseball and spring training baseball here. Um you know, and we also even for a while had uh, Phoenix Roadrunners hockey, but you know, again, it was minor yeah. league, and and there were there were not that the entertainment options uh, that we had here. Uh, movies were a special occasion that people went out to, and there was no gambling, and so horse racing and dog racing provided you know that sort of 
for the people who wanted the thrill of uh, uh, of a $2 wager, um, they, they could get that. And they could get it in an elegant setting. You know, one thing, uh, most of the people in this photo, uh, I, obviously the viewers or the uh, listeners can't can't see it. But, you know, most of the people are, are well-dressed. You know, you don't see pe- a lot of people wearing, you know, grungy T-shirts or anything like that. Um, and And... Going to the horse or the dog track was, um, you know, it was a social event. And so um, it, it, it had a much uh, bigger role in Phoenix society than, than what it does today. And, you know, I think that's kind of borne out by the numbers. Um, the, uh, the handles that they had at the horse and dog tracks uh, were huge back then. And uh, in today's dollars, um, they were a little bit more. But when you consider that our population has increased fourfold, um, you know, the, the, that, that sort of shows you how the industry has not kept pace with, uh, with the community. And, you know, speaking of keeping pace, a lot of things change. You mentioned the movie theaters. And I remember last time I was to a theater, they, you know, it was no longer you just went to watch a movie and grab popcorn and a soda. They had a bar. They had uh, where you could get dinner. They had to change with the times. And a lot of people want to say blame the the downcline of Greyhound Racing on the anti-racing movement. And I think there was a lot more involved than just – what they had to say it was things like this well obviously doing stupid things like all those greyhounds that were found out in the i forget what type of orchard but it was chandler heights yeah yeah. that was uh, stupid stuff like that but times change there was mother many other options now well one thing that big that that happened um was the advent of indian gaming and so when that came on in the early 90s that really uh gave people another option where they could gamble they could do you know table gambling and you know it started pretty much with bingo but then it's expanded greatly and so that i think has taken a huge share of the the gambling revenue away from uh, the the industry, and but you're right, there were um, you know there were some pretty sordid things that happened, particularly with dog racing, and uh, I, I can remember uh, that story when it happened uh, in the early '90s. There were I think it was 134 dogs, uh, uh, their carcasses were found in an orchard, and all their ears had been cut off. Um, and the ears are for those who are uninitiated. They they usually tattoo identifying marks uh, on the dog's ears, and m- almost all the ears have been cut off. But I guess they got careless and they missed a couple, and so they were able to identify the racing owner at the time or the owner of the dogs at the time, and it was um, uh, the the winningest dog owner in Arizona. And so he was drummed out of the sport after that. Yeah, I know um, our dog sitter, um, she had a farm out there. And early on, because where he buried him was closer to some of these other greyhound farms. And you know, she, she was telling me a few weeks ago that her and a couple of the other farms, they were starting to get blamed for it. And thankfully, they did finally catch the person. And that that's one of those things. Um, with the whole Don Bowles thing, um, I've actually been kind of Kathy and I. We went to the hotel. I didn't even know where that hotel was. I went to the hotel, drove through the parking lot. I plan to here in a few weeks go out uh, with the, our dog sitter showing me where to go see where where this where all these greyhounds were found. I'm I'm just wanting to visit oh. the you found because I, I I just want to see these places and not forget what had happened. Yeah, it's really important. Um, 
you know, the, the Clarendon Hotel has a, um, a little statue of Don Bowles uh, there, even though, you know, what happened was in, in, in the parking lot. Um, but, you know, it's, um, it's really important not to forget our history because, uh, you know, as the philosopher said, uh, you know, if you forget has- history, you're condemned to repeat it. And, uh, you know, so hopefully we don't go down those roads again. And, and that does scare me and bothers me. You know, as a racing commissioner, I know that there was issues uh, back in those days with the racing commission. Uh, the, the guy Marley had been appointed to the racing commission. And I think that may have been one of the stories that it brought about the the bombing. And I, I I see things, and I'm like, you know, we've not made the changes we need to, and I I hope going forward we can we can get there. Yeah, you know, one of the things Bowles was investigating at the time, I believe the commission was five members, which I think it still is. It still is, yes. Um, and uh, you know, most of those members were um, had you know deep personal friendships with the people who owned the tracks and ran the tracks, and they had financial connections. And uh, had Marley been allowed to stay on the uh, racing commission he made one of his fortunes at least in uh, as a wholesale liquor distributor and so he had the liquor contracts to the dog and horse tracks and so um, he would have been you know potentially in the position of regulating himself and uh, you know there there's um, several theories as to why Bowles was killed but the, the the main one was that Don Bowles had written stories exposing uh, Kemper Marley's previous uh, misdeeds I guess would be a good way to characterize it um, that made him unfit for the racing commission um, and that was the operating theory that police and prosecutors used um, and, and, and eventually settled on. Uh, but there's another um, theory that's out there that um, Marley was using his business ties at the tracks to launder money that had been skimmed from Las Vegas casinos. And, uh, you know, that could have potentially, if, if he had been allowed to stay on the racing commission, could have potentially opened the door to a lot more corruption in Arizona uh, and a lot more mob influence in Arizona. Well, and you, you just mentioned Las Vegas, and we had been talking about you know how times have changed. And I personally, I kind of think the all the new gambling available to people is one of the big things that changed and gave people other options because I there was a if I can't remember if it was Emprise or it would have I think been Delamar, Delaware North at the time or if it was the Funks that tried to open up a Greyhound track in Las Vegas right I believe it was a combination of the two right. Emprise and the Funks they were um, very closely tied business partners in they owned six tracks I believe in, in, the, in Arizona and I I I remember just always saying to myself, it's like, how the heck did that track not make it? And I think it only went one or two years. And it's like, it's the gambling mecca of the world. You would have thought it would have survived. But it was, um, at that point in time, really on the outskirts, I think out in Henderson on, uh, I think it's the road still there. I think it was Racetrack Road or something like that. And the more now I've been thinking about it, it's like, yeah, it, was, it should have failed there because the people had other forms of gambling 
in town. Right. You could go to a Las Vegas show and gamble and everything in a casino and, and get uh, drinks and then go up to your hotel room yep. without, without really leaving the property. Um, so why would you want to go out to, uh, uh, you know, the middle of nowhere and, uh, you know, for, for a bunch of $2 bets? Right. And, and, you know, another thing I was thinking about, the change over the years, uh, Phoenix Greyhound Park would have been out on the outskirts of the town. You know, I've had people say, wow, it's really nice you guys have an airport in the middle of town. It's like, yeah, it was not in the middle of town back in the day. Yeah. Um, I, uh, my father passed away not too long ago, and we went through some old family movies, and one of them was uh, filmed with my grandfather's movie camera flying into High- Sky Harbor Airport. And in those days, the pilots could actually open the front windows of the plane, the United United, United <laughs> Airline DC-3, and they would stick, you could give them your movie camera and they would hold it out the window. And as he's um, taxiing uh, into the terminal at Sky Harbor, you can just see there's nothing around there but farm fields. Wow. And, you know, even thinking about um, Turf Paradise, of course, I've now I've seen the old pictures of Turf Paradise when I'm walking around down there inside the the offices. And I I remember I was asking uh, Francia, the manager there, I saw one picture and said, is that a runway on the backside there? That's now the uh, where the Cairo and all them can walk their horses like, yeah, there was a. runway and there was nothing else out there it was out in the middle of nowhere yeah i think that might have been an old army air corps field or something uh, to that effect out there but uh yeah it's uh it, it's that was a long way from town back in the day and then you know as time changed and we started having more options in town people it's like we're not going to drive all the way out there we're going to start doing these things here in town and i i think some of these things may may have been the biggest driving forces as to why there's not as much interest in racing as there was at one time. I, maybe it wasn't there was interest in racing. It was the interest was always gambling. Right. And the you know one of the other things i found um, as i was researching the Don Bowles story, uh, it spun me off onto another story on uh, uh, horse race deaths here in Arizona. And there's there, there's a significant number here. I know that all the focus is on uh, Santa Anita racetrack in Southern California, uh, but there's a significant amount here. And, uh, uh, you know, you on the commission and, uh, you know, others have worked to try and uh, reduce the number, but it's, it's, it's still a, a a fairly significant issue. But in researching that article, I talked with people who said, um, you know, uh, these racetracks, they provide a tremendous number of jobs. Um, but then I talked to people on another on the other side, and they said, no, when racetracks are redeveloped, um, they provide even more jobs because you can build resorts on those sites because a lot of them are in very attractive uh, parts of the community. So you can build resorts, and then those resorts provide, you know, even more jobs than, uh, uh, you know, shoveling out horse stalls for minimum wage. And and that's a great point right there. This is something, I think, because I could see right now I'm seeing people on one side just reaming you online for making that statement and all the others, you know, all oh, praising you. And I think it would be a great discussional debate we should have. Let's stop calling each other names. Let's have this discussion so we do the right thing. Yeah, and, you know, it's uh, – I don't want to take away anybody's economic livelihood, um, but, you know, at the same time, um, economics dictates supply and demand. Uh, you know, if something can be put to a higher use, um, usually that's the, the best economic use of it. So. 
Yeah, unfortunately, you know, it happens in all things, all walks of life. There used to be a big mall, uh, well, not it was big at the time, on Glendale and 59th Avenue. And, you know, the JCPenney's that was there moved out to Arrowhead, and then that mall just went empty for years, and then they finally wrecked it and put in a Walmart and a Lowe's, and it's now a productive part of Glendale's community. Yeah, and, you know, that that's just sort of the way. It's, uh, you know, when the something outlives its usefulness, something new comes in to, uh, to take its place. Uh, ideally, um, you know, there are a lot of places, you know, slum and blighted areas in our country where that, that hasn't happened, sadly. Um, but, you know, here in Arizona, we've got um, uh, uh, a lot of uh, the entrepreneurial spirit um, and there's people who, uh, you know, as we mentioned uh, at the top of the show, people who come here from someplace else, um, and they come here to, to do something, to make something of themselves. And so, you know, with that kind of, uh, you know, can-do attitude, that kind of uh, innovation, entrepreneurial spirit, um, you, you can you can remake things. Um, and that's, that's actually part of the the age-old Arizona narrative, the Phoenix narrative, it was named for a bird that, you know, reinvented itself and, re- and rose from the ashes. So we're constantly reinventing things here in Arizona, and that, 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 that's in our DNA. Well, and, you know, I mentioned Phoenix Greyhound Park and that I had visited there this last Sunday. And I had a lot of people asking me, well, is there ever any chances they're going to reopen it? It's like, no, the, it's been sold. And at some point in time, as soon as they can get the train tracks buried, they're going to put it in the taxiway over it to that property. And that's where the uh, shipping, DHL, uh, UPS, uh, FedEx, and Prime, and you know, shipping is now becoming a big thing. So they're going to have a whole new facility for that, mm-hmm. which will be much better for our, our local economy here, I believe. Yeah, it's um, – I, I can remember going to that place – uh, many years ago, and actually the Arizona Republic would rent out uh, their big uh, uh, ballroom or yep. big conference room there, and and we would actually have some uh, some meetings there on occasion. And you know, um, things change, move on. Right now, it's uh, the site of one of the biggest swap meets uh, <laughs> in, in Arizona. Um, but you know, it's it's amazing how things come full circle because Emprise uh, uh, Corporation, as you mentioned. Um, they were a part owner of that track with the Funk family. And, um, you know, Emprise in 1972, um, uh, they were convicted, the company was convicted of having uh, mob ties in, in connection with some uh, uh, mob run casino activity out of Vegas. Um, and then the company was just pilloried in a congressional hearing that was uh, led by uh, Arizona's Sam Steiger. And so um, over the years, uh, the older generation of the family that owned Emprise um, passed it along to their sons, and their son uh, primarily reinvented the company, went legit, so legit that former Arizona Governor Bruce Babbitt, who had spent years trying to shut down Emprise, <laughs> um, had to grant them a contract for concessions in the nation's national parks. And now, and the, the new company is called Delaware North. And now Delaware North is the one that sells all the concessions at the swap meet at uh, at Greyhound Park. So amazing how things just come full circle. Exactly, you're Delaware North, and that's probably how I got onto the commission because I hit as my um, 
my involvement in Greyhound Adoption, I, of course, I had to deal with a lot of the tracks, and that's how they got to know me, and they would see me at various um, uh, meetings for uh, Greyhound, or um, for racing, the racing symposiums down in Tucson. And I, I will say this about Delaware North. Every time I needed help with, with Greyhound Adoption, they were always there and helped me out. Um, and, yeah, time they, they it, it's amazing how things have changed and – yeah, it's and, and they're a, a multi-billion-dollar worldwide conglomerate. They've got uh, um, everything from airline concessions to uh, our airline uh, in-flight meals. When they used to have those, they owned uh, Sky Chef, if you remember that. Yep. And um, you know, so they've they, they've really uh, come in. Now they own the uh, the Boston Bruins hockey team and yep. a bunch of others. So. Well, we have just about three minutes. Is there anything you would like our listeners to know? Um, for one, I, for one, appreciate uh, the work you're doing with Greyhounds, and I, I just think that's an amazing uh, uh, story in and of itself. Um, I, I am a proud owner of a rescue dog, and I think, uh, you know, if, if, if everybody were able to um, adopt a grateful animal, um, it just might make them a little kinder toward their fellow human beings. And if we were all a little bit kinder, um, you know, maybe we wouldn't have quite the, uh, the animosity and the divisions that we have today. So I, I really thank you for the work you're doing. I can say that better. And next weekend, next Friday, I'm going to be in Solvang, California, at speaking to the people there do greyhound adoption galgo adoption and one of the things i'm talking to them is about looking back and i know greyhound world we have a big challenge before us it's now 2020 florida greyhound tracks will be shutting down and i as i look back yes i'm it makes me scared wondering how are we going to do this but i'm also know from looking back We'll be able to do this. Why? Because I know every time we've come up across a challenge, when it was Phoenix Greyhound Park closing down or Apache Junction or Tucson Greyhound Park or all the other tracks across the nation, when they closed, you out there, you volunteers, you guys did an amazing job. I can't thank you guys enough for all the work you did. And that is why I'm confident we will do a great job for the Greyhounds. I have the utmost faith in you. Kathy, any last words? Uh, no, I'm I'm good. And, and John, thank you so much for joining us. I didn't say too much during the show because I was listening and learning. And it was really a, a great experience having you on and sharing your knowledge and, and info with our listeners. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I hope that wasn't an oblique way of saying <laughs> that I talked too much. But thank you. No, it was no you didn't. No, you shut both of us yeah. up pretty good. So that's a plus. Yeah. <laughs> with that, John, again, thank you. Hopefully we can continue doing the changes so we make it a better world. Everyone out there, hug the hounds of the world. I want to thank our producer, Tacey, our engineer, Aaron. Everyone, have a great weekend. Howl! Thank you for listening this week to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Please join your hosts, Rory Goray, TJ Beter, and Kathy Goray for another edition of our program next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a wonderful week.